So I'm going to be um, working through the outline that you see in your bulletin on the white page if you'd like to follow along on that. Several years ago, I heard a talk at a conference for preachers. It was by a man named Wayne Cordero. He's a preacher in Hawaii. And the subject of his talk was reading the Bible for personal application, that, that there are techniques, there are strategies, there are, there are methodologies that we can apply to help us kind of cut through all the fog of 3,000 years and alien cultures to understand what the Bible is saying to us today. And I liked the talk. I got a lot out of it. And so afterwards, I bought his book, and I got um, him to autograph it. So there it is. So Wayne Cordero, um, the divine mentor, growing your faith as you sit at the feet of the Savior. And I, I can recommend it, but instead of recommending it, I'm just going to read the prologue, the prologue, because I think it illustrates what he's talking about. Listen to this. Smoke billowed on the horizon. Smoke where there should be no smoke, at least not a towering column like this one. It couldn't be good. Terrorists, what else could it be? As we approached, we could see a few flames looking at piles of rubble. Yet where there had been homes, streets, playgrounds, gardens, there was nothing at all. Smoke. Ruin, ashes, nothing more. Shocked into immobility, we could do nothing but gape. Where were the homes? Where were the women and children? We poured over the edge of the embankment, some sliding, some jumping, some running headlong, falling, getting up and falling again. Each man ran to the area where his home had been, hoping against hope to see someone moving in the wreckage, a beloved face, a form staggering out of the devastation, but there was no one, and no sound but the dry crackle of flames fanned by a lonely desert wind. Where were the bodies? We saw none. The terrorists must have kidnapped every woman and child in the village. We wept without shame. Some cursed, some called out names in their anguish. Muttering among themselves, clusters began to gather, glancing at one another, nodding, fingering their weapons. It was like the moment before a violent thunderstorm when the air becomes taut and stifling. That's when he collapsed on his knees and convulsed in agony. It's not as though his loved ones had been spared. We couldn't help but watch, and as he poured out his sorrow, pleading for help and hope and direction, his body language began to change. Tension seemed to drain away from his shoulders. His hands unclenched. He lifted his head as he prayed. Finally, rising again to his feet, he wiped away his tears, squared his shoulders, and spoke with a steady voice. In that moment, we could believe again, and rising among us was the confidence that we would recover from the ashes of Ziklag all we had lost and maybe even more. The point of the book is that reading the scriptures imaginatively, letting them speak to us, shows us how we can understand and learn from the heroes of the faith, how we can learn 
from David, who facing utter devastation, terrible loss, found strength to go on. Not just to go on, but to lead his men on a rescue mission. And I want to look today at the scriptures to find where we can find hope. Because we live in an age of terror. We live in an age of terror. We don't simply remember today one event that happened 15 years ago. We know that there has been a succession of terror attacks in our country and certainly around the world over the last 15 years. If there was one tomorrow and you read about it or saw it on TV, none of us would be surprised because we live in an age of terror. I was seeing in the paper just yesterday, uh, there was an article detailing some of the events that took place in San Bernardino last year. We live in an age of terror. And so what I want to do is look at the scriptures and see where we can find the kind of hope that enabled David to carry on at Ziklag. And where we find it, where I found it, was in a passage from the New Covenant witness to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel according to Matthew. So as you're finding your scriptures, what I want to do is kind of explain where we're coming from as we pick up this uh, saying of Jesus right in the middle. Jesus has just given his disciples instructions to go out and to announce that he's coming to the villages that are on his way to Jerusalem. And then in the middle of that set of instructions, Jesus suddenly takes a turn. It's like he loses the plot. And instead of talking about their mission as disciples, he talks about the mission of future disciples and how it will face threat. Now, in this passage, Jesus is talking about persecution. And terrorism is not persecution. There may be some certain parallels, but I wouldn't push them. Jesus is talking about persecution here. But in this passage, he shows us the kind of hope that we're looking for in an age of terror, the kind of hope that David found and sustained him at Ziklag. So he talks about persecution. He says, he says that his disciples are being sent out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware them, they'll hand you over to councils. They'll flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings as a testimony to them. When they hand you over, do not worry. He says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his children. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Jesus says there will be great persecution because of his name. And then we arrive at the passage we heard earlier. Jesus says, a disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. Jesus says that if we as Christians seek to follow Jesus, seek to be his apprentices, to be his disciples, to learn from him, to become like him, then we can only expect the treatment that he got. That if we feel as if we have been exempted from what Jesus took at the hands of the world, it's simply because we aren't good enough disciples. He says, as we grow in Christian discipleship, we can expect to face persecution. So Jesus says that persecution 
is what we can expect as we grow to become like him. And then he goes on. He says, If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? When we have trouble, when we have trouble of any kind, any kind of suffering, I think it's natural human response to say, where is God? We can say, doesn't God know what I'm dealing with right here? Doesn't God know my suffering? Or maybe we say, God does know, but he can't do anything about it. God is helpless. He'd like to do something about it, but he can't. Or worse, we may find ourselves saying, God knows, but he's the one doing this. God is inflicting this on me as judgment for something I did or something I failed to do. And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Jesus says, our troubles don't come from God. They come from a world that is opposed to God. That we shouldn't be trying to figure out from our troubles what God thinks about us. Because troubles are not a sign from God. Troubles are a sign from the world. So as you follow along in the, in, in the, in the outline, earthly troubles are not a sign from God. Earthly troubles are a sign from the world that is opposed to God. Jesus continues. He says, what I say in the dark, he says, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered and nothing secret that will not become known. This is where Jesus says what our hope is. He says, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. He says, we can't understand why God doesn't do something about our suffering. God doesn't tell us. And frankly, I don't know if God did tell us whether that would be acceptable to us, if we'd say, well, I don't buy it. But for whatever reason, uh, or because it's too complicated or because we're not in a place where we can hear it right now, God doesn't tell us why he allows us to suffer. But he does show us, he doesn't simply tell us, he shows us that he cares. And the way he shows us is by sending Jesus. So we may be mystified why it is that God hasn't done something about our suffering. But there's something we can hang on to. Something that we can actually tell others, which is that God has acted in Christ to save us. So in the outline it says we cannot explain God's reasons. We cannot explain God's reasons. We don't know what they are. Or we have only the vaguest hints. But what we can do is we can proclaim Jesus' victory. We can't explain God's reasons, but we can proclaim Jesus' victory. Jesus is saying here, this is not a secret, that Christianity is not to become some kind of a mystery religion where people are inaugurated level by level into, into deeper mysteries. Jesus is saying, this is the center of why I came. And you should tell it to everybody. Proclaim it. I'm telling you in the darkness of the world, but I want you to proclaim it to everyone so there will be light. He says, he says, what I tell you in the dark, tell in the light. And now he comes to the source of our hope. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. What Jesus is talking about here is the distinction between body and soul. 
And, you know, for us, that's a phrase. We don't necessarily, you know, it's a piano song or whatever. Um, uh, we don't know what exactly Jesus is getting at here. But what he means is there is a body. I have a body. You have a body. And my body is alive. And someday my body will die. And the difference between my body now and my body then is there will be no life in it. And he says that soul, that life, what the ancients called the anima, the thing that made a body animated, that is what they cannot kill. You know, we have this phrase, they took his life. But Jesus is saying that's exactly what they can't do. All they can do is kill the body. They cannot take our life. So Jesus says that suffering is limited. There's only so much the world can do. The world can inflict torment on us. And that may be intense and it may feel prolonged, but Jesus says it has limits. God has ordained limits to what the world can do. And more than that, Jesus says it is temporary. He says it will come to an end when our body dies, but beyond that, evil itself will be put to an end. In the book of Revelation, the seer of Patmos says that he saw a great multitude and he asked who they he, <clears throat> he was asked who they were and he said he said sir you know and then he was told these are they who have come out of the great ordeal they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb and he says the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd he will guide them to springs of the water of life and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes he says not only is suffering temporary in the sense that it will come to an end, but that God will roll it back. God will wipe it away. That there will be healing from the suffering. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, I think the primary meaning of this passage is people who have been subject to persecution, the people that Jesus is talking about in this passage those who have been persecuted. But I think ultimately, beyond that, the great ordeal is living in a world that is opposed to God, that every form of suffering ultimately is part of that ordeal. And those who hang on, those who carry on, those who find hope and get through the ordeal are those that we see in this multitude. So suffering is limited and temporary. Well, what does Jesus mean? Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Is he saying, just trade our fears, our fear of Al-Qaeda or violence or sickness, just trade our fear of that for fear of God? No. He says, there's more. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are counted. Not just when you fall to the ground, but when a hair falls from your head to the ground, God notices. He says, do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. He says, there is a greater fear than losing your body. It is losing your body and your life, your body and your soul. There is a greater fear. But he says, do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. And Jesus doesn't just say that, of course. We know this. Jesus doesn't simply say you are of more value. 
He proves it. The fact he was there that day talking to his disciples is proof that we are of more value. Because Jesus is like a 9-11 first responder. He left his comfy home, not in New Jersey, but in heaven. And he ran into our burning world to save all that could be saved. Jesus proves what he says about God's love. Jesus proves God's love. And more than that, he doesn't simply prove that God loves us. I love that. You know, I love them. They're wonderful. He proves what God says, that there is a body and a soul. And the way he proved that is he said, I'm going to go first and show you the way. He said, in three, in, in a few days, they're going to nail me to cross. I'm going to be publicly executed in the most vicious and hateful way humanity has devised. Everyone's going to see me dead. And three days later, God will prove that all the world can do is take my body. They cannot take my soul. So Jesus proves God's love, and he went first. He shows us the way. So what is the bottom line? The bottom line is that God doesn't want us to be afraid. Thou shalt be fearless. Three times in this short passage, Jesus says, Have no fear. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. God's desire is that his children are not cringing, afraid of their heavenly taskmaster who would smite them. But children of God, Jesus calls us his friends. He says, we have nothing to fear from the world because the world can only kill the body. It cannot kill the soul. Any suffering we face is limited and temporary. And he tells us, we live in a dark world. We don't know why God hasn't stopped all the violence, all the hatred. But he says, we can proclaim the one thing we do know which is that Christ has overcome it. So let me ask you, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of terrorists? Are you afraid of violence? Are you afraid of crime? Are you afraid of sickness? Are you afraid of a wasting disease? Are you afraid of old age? Are you afraid of loneliness? Are you afraid of financial ruin? Jesus says, do not be afraid. Jesus wants us to live bold, fulfilled joyous lives, unafraid by anything that the world can do to us. This is, this is not some kind of side corner of the Christian faith. This is the beating heart of Christianity. That until that day comes, this is the hope we cling to. And clinging to that hope is faith. This is faith, to believe that God has something better for us, that suffering is limited and temporary. Jesus wants our faith to be bold. So for the next several weeks, starting next Sunday, we're going to be looking at passages that teach us how we can have a bold, daring, unintimidated faith. And I pray that you'll be a part of those discussions. Let's pray. Loving God, we give thanks for Jesus that he proves your love. He, he talked about your love. He helped us to understand what it all means. But more than that, he showed us. He came down from heaven. He rushed into the burning building of our world. He took our sin upon us, upon himself, and saved us. And he showed that the worst that the world can do is to take our body and not our life. Lord, we pray that you will help us to have faith, to maintain this hope. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us when the people around us are afraid to share our faith, to proclaim on housetops the good news that he revealed in the darkness. And Lord, ultimately, we pray for an end to violence and hatred, sickness and disease with the church all through the ages, we pray ultimately, come Lord Jesus. All these things we ask in his name. Amen.